Good afternoon. My um, wife tells me that whenever I share, I'm too serious. Which is quite true, la, because I've done a couple of personality tests on myself. Eh? And the conclusion is quite consistent. I am uh, gloomy. I am a bit shy. I am uh, negative sometimes. So my, my personality is a heavy kind of personality. You know, people around me get very disturbed when I'm around. You know, I'm not the type that will liven things up. In fact, I do the opposite. So with great effort, I'm going to tell you a joke. <laughs> Spent a lot of time trying to dig this up. Here goes. Once upon a time, I'm sorry, for those who came here this morning and heard this before, uh, I, I don't have enough energy to come up with two different jokes for two different audiences. So bear with me if you've heard this before uh, earlier on. Once upon a time, a perfect man and a perfect woman met. After a perfect courtship, they had a perfect wedding. Their life was, of course, perfect. And one snowy, stormy Christmas Eve, this perfect couple were driving their perfect car, an SUV, along a winding road where they noticed someone at the side of the road in distress. Being the perfect couple, they stopped to help. There stood Santa Claus with a huge bundle of toys. Not wanting to disappoint any children, on the eve of Christmas, this perfect couple loaded Santa and his toys onto the vehicle. Soon they were driving along, delivering the toys. Unfortunately, the driving conditions deteriorated and the perfect couple and Santa Claus met with an accident. Only one of them survived the accident. Can you guess who it was? Wrong. It was the perfect woman. She survived. She's the only one who really existed in the first place. Everyone knows there's no Santa Claus. Everyone knows there's no such thing as a perfect man. I'm not done yet. Wait. Wait for it. So if there's no perfect man and there's no Santa Claus, the perfect woman must be driving, right? That's why I got accident. Uh, now you laugh. Now you laugh. Okay. Let's look at our text today. Luke chapter 1, verses 67 to 80. Notice the parts... Notice the parts which are underlined. I'll come back and uh, comment about them in a minute. Luke 1, chapter six, uh, sorry, Luke 1 chapter, verse 67. And his father Zechariah was, this is from the English Standard Version, ESV. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. Take note of that. And the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear. Verse 75. In holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare His ways, to give knowledge of salvation to His people in the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, 
to guide our feet into the way of peace. Last week, you heard Pastor Kokfai share about a um, couple of other passages which are in the history of the church has been known as the Lucan, Lucan Canticles, the canticles or songs that were written by St. Luke uh, in the opening chapters of this gospel. And all these songs had fancy Latin names and derived from the first few words of each song. Last week, you heard about Mary's Magnificat. Today, we'll talk about Zechariah's Benedictus. Um, and the word Benedictus comes in the Latin for the first few words of this verse in 68, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. And as you may have guessed, from this word comes the word benediction or blessing. And the next week, you hear from Kokfai about Nung Damitis. And whatever that means, you will listen to him next week. Okay, so three songs, three canticles. Let's talk about Zechariah and Elizabeth. Luke tells us that he was a priest of the tribe of Ahijah. And Ahijah served during the time of King Saul, hundreds of years before Zechariah, before Christ. And Zechariah's name means God will remember. And that name is recalled for us in verse 72 of our text. That's what I underlined earlier on. When God is said to remember His holy covenant. Right? And his wife Elizabeth comes from the tribe of Aaron. And Aaron, as you may remember, was Israel's first high priest. And Elizabeth's name means the oath of God, the oath of God. And that ties in with verse 73, the other verse which I highlighted, that God says He gave an oath that He swore to our forefathers. Right? The oath that He swore to our forefathers. So this couple, Zechariah and Elizabeth, had very good credentials. We're told that they were righteous before God, blameless in all the commandments and statutes. There was only one problem. They had no children. And in those days, not having children was a very unpleasant thing because it signified that God had no pleasure on them. God was putting them under a curse. Remember Sarah, the wife of Abraham? Childless into old age before she gave birth to Isaac? Genesis 16.2 Or Hannah, who grieved over her barren state for many years before she gave birth to the prophet Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 1. Thankfully, their grief at being childless did not keep Elizabeth and Zechariah from performing their priestly duties. So Zechariah was chosen by Lot to burn incense in the temple as people were praying outside. And while he was burning incense, the angel Gabriel appeared to Zechariah. Luke chapter 1, verse 13. But the angel said, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. You shall call his name John. You will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb, and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the power and the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Zaki, your prayer has been heard. Your wife will conceive and bear you, not a daughter, but a son. Because Israel in those days the patriarchal society where boys command a higher market value than girls. Let me stop here. The angel predicts what this boy will be, what, what this boy will be and what he will do. 
Firstly, he was given a name by the angel, John, which means, and those of you who are called John here, you will know God is gracious. God is gracious. Secondly, he will be what the Bible calls a Nazarite, an obscure but a special group of people set aside for God for a certain period of time. And Nazarites had to take a vow not to drink alcohol. Thirdly, you'll be filled with the Holy Spirit, specially anointed, just like the Old Testament prophet Elijah. And finally, he's got a special job to do, turning the people of Israel back to the God of their forefathers. And he will be the forerunner or the herald of the Messiah, a person whom the Old Testament prophets said will liberate or free Israel from oppression. So when he heard all that from the angel Gabriel, Zechariah was just incredulous. So the angel told Zechi that because he did not believe his words, he will become mute until the things foretold come to pass. And then the story switches to Luke chapter 1, verses 26 to 38, to the visit of this same angel Gabriel to another woman, Mary, and a prophecy of the birth of the Son of God in human form. Mary, who was confused and thrilled in equal measure by what the angel told her, goes and visits her older cousin, Elizabeth, wife of Zechariah, in order to check out the angel's prophecy that Elizabeth herself was pregnant and expecting. And as one commentator puts it, two miracle mothers met. Two miracle mothers met. And the baby in Elizabeth's womb jumped inside her when Mary greeted her. And Elizabeth pronounced a blessing on Mary. And then we have the Magnificat that you heard last week. Now we come to this passage. When Elizabeth's son was born and Zechariah got back his voice. And we are told that he was filled with the Holy Spirit and he breaks out into this song, this Benedictus. And as you read the words of this song, I'd like you to notice the connection between the name of John, Zechariah's son, and the words of this song. The angel says, his name is John. And remember what John means. God is gracious. And Zechariah's song, the Benedictus, is an interpretation of that name. Because God is indeed gracious. God's grace is manifested in the salvation He has brought about to the nations. So look at the words of this song again, especially those which are underlined. Verse 68, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for He has visited and redeemed His people. Verse 69, has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of His servant David, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Verse 74, that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve Him without fear, to give knowledge of salvation to the people in the forgiveness of their sins, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet to the way of peace. You know what? That is the language of salvation. That is the language what we Christians call salvation. So what can we learn about salvation from this passage? You know, I, most preachers like to use what we call mnemonics. Mnemonics. In other words, you use the same alphabet for a point. 
So you have three R's, four S's, two O's, five L's, you know, those sorts of things. I tell you, I tried very hard. I tried very hard. I couldn't. Okay? My English is not powerful enough. So I couldn't come up with mnemonics. All I could do is three alphabets, RVS. Okay? RVS. R. Redemption. Verse 68, the word redeem means to set free by paying the price. And redemption in the Bible involves the release of people, animals, or sometimes property from bondage through outside help. Through outside help. That's important. Why do they need outside help? Well, most of the time, or in fact all the time, they need outside help because they couldn't do it themselves. They're too weak, they're too poor. Someone strong and rich or rich can bring about redemption. And a couple of examples in the Old Testament, let me give you a couple of them. In those days, an Israelite man may sometimes sell his daughter to another Israelite as a, as a slave. Right? It was permitted in those days. But today it's outlawed, of course. And while this may sound like sexual exploitation, the man who bought the slave may take the young slave girl as his wife. But Exodus 21.8 says that such a man must allow his slave girl, wife, to be redeemed. And redemption ends her humiliation and restores her back to her family. Another example. If an ox kills someone, then the Old Testament law says that that ox must be killed by stoning. But if that ox has a history of killing people because it has not been properly restrained, then in addition to the ox being stoned to death, the owner of that ox must also be killed. Must also be killed. But Exodus 21.30 says that the owner of that ox can be redeemed from the death penalty by the payment of ransom money, provided the victim's family consents to such payment. So in this case, redemption extends mercy towards the irresponsible ox owner. Another example, Exodus 13.2, the Lord said to Moses, Consecrate to me all the firstborn. Whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of men and of beast, is mine. So God owns all the firstborn, whether human or animal. But in place of firstborn sons, God accepted the tribe of Levi as ransom. And the rest of the firstborn sons are therefore released from God's right of ownership. You read in, first, in, sorry, in Numbers chapter 3, verse 40 to 41, And the Lord said to Moses, List all the firstborn males of the people of Israel from a month old upwards, taking the number of their names, and you shall take the Levites for me. I am the Lord, instead of all the firstborn among the people of Israel, and the cattle of the Levites, instead of the firstborn among the cattle of the people of Israel. In other words, the Levites were the redemption price, the ransom money for all the firstborn of Israel, and they served as priests in God's tabernacle. Most stunning, supreme example of Old Testament redemption, Exodus. God freed Israel from captivity, brutal captivity under Pharaoh in Egypt. But the difference here is that this redemption happens not through payment of ransom money, right? but by God's mighty hand. And God redeemed Israel not because they were deserving, but because of His promise to Abraham hundreds of years before that, 
that He will give the Israelites a land they can call their own. And as we move to the New Testament, we see how this idea of redemption was applied to Jesus Christ. In Mark chapter 10, verse 45, Jesus is the servant who gives His life as a ransom for many. And ransom, the word ransom, that's redemption language from the Old Testament. That's salvation word. And Paul uses the term redemption, redeem in a different context. Galatians chapter 3, verse 10 to 13. I'll just read from verse 11. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on the tree. Christ redeemed us. The same word again. Christ redeemed us from the curse. And you see how this verse here in Galatians combines the two ideas that we talked about earlier. The redemption of the firstborn by substituting one, the Levites for the people of Israel, firstborn of Israel. In our case, Jesus is the one who was our substitute for us. We are the many. We are the sinful humanity for whom Christ died. So the substitution of the one for many and secondly, the redemption of the condemned to death, the guy, the irresponsible ox owner whose animal killed someone. See, those ideas are being combined in this text in Galatians chapter 3. So when Jesus died on the cross, and we all know this, He purchased release from death for those who trust in Him at the cost of His own life. And we are sinners who are supposed to die and perish because of our guilt before our righteous and holy God. But Jesus Christ was our substitute. He was the sacrificial lamb who paid the price for our sins. Years back, many years ago, I used to, you know, I lived in the States for two years when I was doing some studies there. And I went, I attended the American Baptist Church and I learned a little chorus which I've never heard before in Singapore. Right? I've looked for it, but I've never heard it. It's a long time ago, but the words of this chorus goes a bit like this. He paid a debt he did not owe I owe a debt I could not pay. I needed someone to wash my sins away. And then the rest of the song. So brothers and sisters, friends, Christ died, died so that we might live. So that's our redemption. Now V, victory. Verse 69, and He has raised up a horn of salvation for us, for us in the house of servant David. The kind of horn here is not, is not the musical instrument known as the shofar that Jewish musicians use. You can see a picture of that. Or you might have even heard it being played. It's not, okay? Uh, I know we may think it is, but it's not. But let's go back to the Old Testament to see what the horn of salvation really means. Psalm 92. Behold your enemies, O Lord, Behold, your enemies shall perish. All evildoers shall be scattered. But you have exalted my horn like that of the wild ox. You have poured over me fresh oil. Micah chapter 4, verse 13. Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion, for I will make your horn iron, and I will make your hooves 
bronze. You shall beat in pieces many people and shall devote their gain to the Lord, their wealth to the Lord of the whole earth. The horn in this passage is a sign of strength and a symbol, a means of victory. In Texas, USA, ranchers there breed a, cat, a type of cattle known as the longhorn. They look like this. Right? You can probably guess why they have the name longhorn. Because the horns of this cattle can grow up to 2.1 meters tip to tip. 2.1 meters tip to tip. These longhorns are strong and sturdy. They look the part anyway. They can cover great distances and are known for being aggressive and they have a lot of stamina as breeders. They stand up to 5 feet tall at the shoulder and they can weigh as much as 1,100 kilograms. Can you imagine if one of these longhorns get angry, start charging at you? It's like a rhinoceros, right? That is the image of the horn of salvation because the horns are a sign of great strength and the means of victory in conflict. There's a story in 1 Kings chapter 22. Um, I won't need you to refer to it. And that kind of explains this concept a little bit better. What happened was this. The king of Israel wanted to develop a military alliance, cooperation with the king of Judah. Remember the two nations split, right? Northern and Southern Kingdom. And they wanted to attack Syria and try to regain some ground which was lost, territory which was lost. And Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, he was a more godly man than the king of Israel. Jehoshaphat wanted to consult God before forming this alliance to see if their campaign, the military campaign, could succeed. And so they called a group of prophets together to come and tell them, tell the two kings, will they succeed in this campaign against the Syrians when they join forces with each other. And one of those prophets was called, was somebody named Zedekiah. Right? And this is the passage in Second, First Kings chapter 22, verses 11 to 12. Zedekiah, the son of Chenanah, made for himself horns of iron and said, Thus says the Lord, with these you shall push the Syrians until they are destroyed. And all the prophets prophesied so and said, Go up to Ramoth Gilead and triumph, for the Lord will give it into the hands of the king. Wow. Only trouble was this. It's a false prophecy. The armies of the two kings were utterly defeated in battle. But you see the point? Horns. Horns are associated with victory. Psalm 18.2. Some of you know this verse. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer my God, my rock, in whom I take refuge, my shield, and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. Redemption, victory, as service. So we are saved. We are victorious. The horn of salvation. We are redeemed from sin and slavery. So what? To what purpose? To what end? Just that we may go to heaven? Galatians chapter 4 verse 5. This is what the Apostle Paul says. But when the fullness of time had come, 
God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem, same word, to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. So we are redeemed from being slaves to becoming adopted sons. Adopted. Adopted, no doubt, but sons nevertheless. And then you ask again, so what? So what? What's the goal of all this? Look at the lower part of the slide. Go back to the text in Luke chapter 1, verses 74 and 75. That we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve Him without fear in holiness and righteousness before Him all our days. To serve God in holiness and righteousness all our days. What does that mean? What does that mean? The rest of Luke chapter 1, the passage from Zechariah's song, Benedictus, talks about the mission of Zechariah's son, John the Baptist. Look at verse 77. To give knowledge of salvation to his people. Look at verse 79. To give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. So these are the words that Zechariah prophesied about his son John. But they can just as well apply to all of us, isn't it? You see how this has developed from slavery to sonship to sanctification. We are to walk before Him in holiness and righteousness all the days of our life to servanthood. Serve the Lord. So that's that's the end game. That's the end game. We are saved to become sons so that we may be sanctified and that we may serve. Now, this one, I got it right. Lah. Mnemonics. Four S's. Right? We are saved that we may become sons so that we can be sanctified, that we can serve the Lord. And we are to bring light to those in darkness and guide men and women and boys and girls into the way of peace. But guess what? BBH, it kind of mirrors our mission and purpose statement, doesn't it? Every week you receive this or you get it printed out from the internet when Pikachu sends this out to all members. And you see right at the very top, our purpose to magnify God, membership to commit to His family, maturity to grow in Christ's likeness and to become sanctified, ministry to serve others, mission to reach the lost to provide those in darkness light and to guide men into the way of peace. You see, brothers and sisters, we are not saved just so that we can win a ticket to heaven. Well, that's quite true. It is true, not quite, it's true. But being saved is just step number one. We must realize our destiny and live out our identity as sons of El Elyon, the song we just sang, God Most High. And to live as sons means we don't embarrass our Heavenly Father. Alright, or to use a phrase in Hokkien, if you pardon the language, 
And I'm sure you have friends who, non-Christian friends who object to when you share the gospel with them. They say, get lost. Ah. I don't want to listen to all this rubbish. Why? Because they say, look at all these Christians out there. You know, Look at so and so. His life don't gel with his talk. They lead double lives. They profess one thing, they do the opposite. So let us examine ourselves thoroughly. Zechariah's Benedictus reminds us that we should pursue righteousness and holiness before God all the days of our lives. Last week, Pastor shared some, um, I, I don't know whether he said it in this second service, but he did say it in the first service when he was talking about the Magnificat and he went back to the whole life inventory which the church did. You know, and then he challenged the church. He said, look, guys, these are the words of Jesus. These are very scary words. Right? When the Lord said in the Sermon on the Mount, in chapter, Matthew chapter 7, verse 13 to 23, I'm just going to read extracts of it. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter it are many. But the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Will we be among the many or the few? Not everyone who says to me, and this is the really scary part, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, verse 21, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. We have nowhere to hide, my friends, one day. When we face the Lord, this is the judgment that He pronounces on us. We have nowhere to hide. Some more hard saying, some more tough words from the Master. Matthew, Mark chapter 8, verse 34 to 37. He called the crowd to Him along with the disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up the cross and follow Me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for Me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? One more. Luke chapter 14, verse 25. Great crowds accompanied him and he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me, and listen to this carefully, and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, Yes, even his own life. He cannot be my disciple. Strong words. Let's not dumb these words down. True, God is a God of love. Well, how can you speak of hate? But that's exactly what the text says. Of course, it's all relative. Huh? You can interpret it as all being relative. But the words the Lord spoke are just so strong and so direct. Hate his own father, hate his own mother, hate his wife, hate his children, brothers, sisters, even his own life. He cannot be my disciple. So, my brothers and sisters, friends, you know, Christianity is not just a ticket to heaven. It's what I would like to call an all-consuming enterprise. All-consuming enterprise. 
we are indeed saved, not by works, but by grace through faith. This is the great truth of the Reformation that, you know, we have now 500 years of it, when Martin Luther hammered the 95 Theses on the wall of a church in Wittenberg in Germany. Right? Today we are here celebrating 500 years of the Reformation history. By grace through faith. That is the great declaration. But this grace that we speak of, that the Reformers talk about, is what someone called costly grace, expensive grace, not cheap grace. It's costly because it costs God the life of His Son. And likewise, it will cost us our total 120% commitment. Because God, who has given us His all in the person of His Son, deserves our all in every area of our lives. What our eyes see, whether they are clean or unclean. What our lips say, whether they are words that build up or words that destroy. What our hands do, whether it is in serving others, washing other people's feet, or seeking our own welfare. What, where our feet go, whether to places that honour God or places that dishonour Him. What our minds are preoccupied with, whether the things of the Spirit or the things of this world. And what our hearts, what our hearts are moved by, whether it be the will of God or our own self-will. Those of you who came earlier would have witnessed the baptism of um, some people downstairs. There was a testimony by a lady who lived in Teban Gardens being served by a CSC, a lady by the name of Mary. And you can read in the bulletin their testimonies, some of these people, both in the English, Chinese, English service and the Chinese service. And you can read how their lives have changed, turning away from the world and sin toward the Lord Jesus Christ, giving their lives over to Him. The Bible tells us that Christ died not for any wrong He has done, but for our sins and on our behalf, taking upon Himself punishment due to us. And He is the one who has redeemed us, set us free from slavery, sin, made us sons and daughters of Most High God, given us victory over our enemies. The enemies here don't refer to your rival in school trying to get the A-star or the honours or the guy in the office whom you work with trying to climb the next ladder for promotion or even the rival for the affection of some young lady or some young man. That's not the enemies that are referred to in this passage. They refer to the Lord, the, the, the devil and sin. And God has cleansed us and given us the privilege of serving Him in bringing light to those in darkness, leading many feet into the way of peace. Go sign up to be a befriender. No, we didn't coordinate this. Lah. It just came to mind. Bringing light to those in darkness, bringing people to walk many feet into the way of peace. I want to invite the musicians to come as we get ready for the closing song. May I invite you all to rise, please?
pray that the words of this song would speak to you and that you will be greatly encouraged to live out what the song says. One. You stood before creation
my soul, Lord, to you surrender all I am is yours. Can I ask the musicians to continue playing this song in the background? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we want to thank you that you are our Redeemer, that you have given us victory, that the horns of our salvation is something that you have granted to us. We thank you too that you have given us this privilege of being able to be called your sons and your daughters, even though we are adopted, but we are your sons and daughters nevertheless. Thank you, Lord, for your sanctifying work upon the cross, for your redeeming work upon the cross. And Lord, we thank you too that you have given us the privilege of being able to serve you. So help us, Father. Help us to live out this wonderful identity that we have as children of God. Help us to be able to live out our lives in, in holiness and in righteousness before you and that we may serve you all the days of our lives. Lord, you know that we are weak. You know that we are full of burdens that, that weigh upon our shoulders. But Lord, you have delivered us. You have freed us. You have given us joy, abundant, and eternal life so that we can be your servants and we can bring others into the, into the kingdom of God. We can lead others into the way of peace. We thank you, Father. We ask that uh, you will continue to lead and guide us as the day and the weeks pass, that we may be able to serve you diligently and faithfully. Thank you, Lord. We commit ourselves to you. I want to ask that those of you who seek to have some ministry and whom the Lord has spoken to and you want to rededicate your lives to the Lord, please, uh, after the service is over, come forward and the leaders of the church will pray for you. Lord, we thank you and we ask and pray all this in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen. Okay, service is over. As today is the first Sunday of the month, there's lunch, uh, fellowship lunch later on downstairs. Feel free, just stay a bit longer, have lunch and uh, you know, spend some time together.